Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Episode of You're Wrong with me, David Harsani, and Molly Hemingway. If you have comments for the show, please send them to radio at the Federalist. Uh, we'd love to get them. How are you, Molly? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm 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 doing okay. I'm doing okay. Well, it was another busy week in politics, right? And uh, I think we should start off with this story. Uh, I believe it came out on Monday this week from the Washington Post's fact checker, Glenn Kessler. By the way, if you would do me the favor, David, since I can see you, if you could only use the term fact checker, if you put scare quotes around both fact and checker, that would be great. Everyone should visualize that because when I write columns about fact checkers, there are always uh, quotation marks around it. I actually think it's the most dishonest form of journalism that exists. It's basically just column writing. Um and complete, you know, not useful other than allowing people to pretend that they have the facts on their side when things that they're talking about are quite debatable. And this is a perfect instance of the fact checker not doing anything that resembles anything to do with actual facts or checking of facts. The piece is about the infamous letter sent by 50 former spooks during the 2020 election dismissing the New York Post's Hunter Biden scoop as having all the classic earmarks of Russian disinformation. Um, so do you want to get into it a little bit? The, the, this, yeah. Yeah, let's just first, you know, just to go back to that moment in time, um, the 2020 election, easily the most important campaign story was related to the Biden family business. The New York Post broke this news. It was... You know, the New York Post is the oldest continuously publishing newspaper in the country. They had the goods on this laptop that uh, was reportedly left at a laptop repair shop by Hunter Biden and not picked up. And so after a certain period of time, you you get to become the owner of this laptop. And so the guy who owned the shop saw that there was a lot in there that dealt with some major issues of the day. Um, you might remember the first impeachment of Donald Trump was related to whether or not Ukraine had a corruption problem and whether or not the Biden family business was involved there. This laptop had information about not just that, but all sorts of corrupt entities that were doing business with the Biden family. And people were about to vote to make Joe Biden their president. So there's no debate that this was absolutely newsworthy and really in an existential way, because it involves countries that are involved with conflict and war, you know, communist China, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera. And so when it came out, it was a big deal. And it was hard to get it out in the first place because so many people in corporate media 
were rooting and running the Biden campaign. They were rooting for him and running it. And so they didn't want to report honestly about what they should have been investigating on their own. But even when it was kind of given to them, they didn't want to report on it. And so it's in this context that the New York Post publishes almost immediately left-wing activists at the social media companies, not just Twitter, but Facebook, which their, their person in charge of this was literally a former Kamala Harris employee. They start suppressing the news story, deplatforming any outlet that puts it out there or any person. I mean, not just the New York Post got deplatformed, but Kaylee McEnany, who merely shared the story, was deplatformed. And then we get, you know, this other element, which is 50 former intel agents say this is Russian disinfo, according to Politico. And so it gave everything that everybody needed to violently suppress the story. And Joe Biden relied on this when he was asked about the Biden family business. He would claim that he'd been cleared by these 50 former intel agents who said it was Russian disinformation, even though he knew that was wrong. And I just want to point out here. Sorry for going off on all this, but how reckless to be running for president and to blame Russia, an adversary, for your son's idiocy and your business. You know, this is this is Joe Biden's family business and he's blaming Russia, which is a country that has sixty five hundred nuclear warheads and that we would be at war with in a few short years. How irresponsible and reckless is that? But anyway, um, yeah. So now let me. Yeah, that Republicans are investigating a, it. I'm sorry. Let me. Can I put a little more? Just give you some other little facts about this that I was looking up because I'm writing a piece on it. The day the story broke, Adam Schiff came out and said, "We know that this is a Kremlin plant, the laptop. We know," he said. So, um, what was his name? Uh, John Ratcliffe comes out and he gives a statement saying, "We actually don't know that at all. There's no evidence of that. This is just something you're saying." That night of that statement is when, when uh, what is her name? Natasha Bertrand? Fusion Natasha, Natasha yeah. Bertrand. She reports that day, that night, she reports that, da- you know, she reports about this letter that was handed over to her from a activist who were, who was had close ties with John Brennan, who also lied to the American people, just like Clapper did. And I just wanted to give the quote that Clapper gives us today, that he says that the Politico piece distorted the message of the letter. He says that uh, all we were doing was raising a yellow flag, that this could be Russian disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. It was clear in paragraph five. Now, paragraph five is this perfunctory statement about how we don't know because we don't have our hands on it and so forth. Um, I'm sorry to have interrupted you. I just think it's important to note that Clapper has not said. And so, as you mentioned, Biden was during the debate, he said 50, you know, former Intel professionals have said this is Russian disinformation on 60 minutes. He said that we know this is Russian disinformation. And yet James Clapper never said a word of pushback then, never said a word during the election. Yeah, I want to get to that, but I just wanted to explain why we're talking about this article today. So um, earlier this week, The Washington Post quote unquote, fact, quote unquote, checker, Glenn Kessler revisits this letter that was such a big deal and says, oh, yeah, we're going to look at this and we're going to fact check this letter years later. The reason why Glenn Kessler is doing that is because Republicans on the Hill are beginning to investigate the malfeasance of of our corrupt media, of our corrupt intel community and 
to do that, Glenn Kessler is now running interference to kind of help out these Intel officials. We all know that this, that all 50 of them were just full of bunk when they put out this note saying this, we, you know, this is, this is Russian disinfo or sure looks like it. That was done for political purposes to help their favored candidate win. And now years later, now that everyone's had to admit, oh, that thing we said wasn't true was true. The Hunter Biden laptop that details the Biden family business and its corruption. Now they're walking back some of this stuff. Right. Yeah. No, this is cover. But if you read the piece, it's not just a way to cover for the intel guys with this pedantic fact check. Like who really I mean, the the purpose of, of it was to give ammunition to the Washington Post, to tech for tech companies, for everyone who tried to censor this story. It was just ammunition so they could say this is probably Russian disinformation. We don't know. And in the meantime, as you know, the the, the Post story was far uh, had far more substantiation and was far better reported than virtually any story having to do with Russia collusion. They were in physical possession of the laptop. They had on the record sources talking about these relationships. Um, I think I'm not sure exactly where in the timeline, but they had forensic computer specialists uh, authenticate the emails as real. All these things happened. And yet, you know, the Washington Post refused to report it. They're just so, so okay yeah there's this, another part of the story where where they talk about how the 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 dnc had been hacked and they you know they were being extra careful after that incident which is such oh, so is, funny yeah he puts in the context of the dnc being hacked and how careful they wanted to be without realizing that what he's saying there is real facts that came out about the dnc hurt hillary clinton in the 2016 campaign and we didn't want that to happen again it's not like we didn't want, you know, it's not like these things weren't true that affected the 2016 campaign, even though it's, of course, wrong to hack and release information. But also, wait, there was another thing I wanted to say about it, and I forgot. I'm getting old. Also, I just quickly want to say, I think that the Hillary scandals had also made them very wary of reporting on this stuff to allow it to take over a news cycle. Uh, they were protecting Joe Biden. It's cl- it's as clear oh, as can be. Yeah, I know what I was going to say. How about the other context, Glenn Kessler and the Washington Post, how about the context that we had most people in our intelligence community doing a soft coup against the duly elected president of the United States and the people he represents for years? How about that context, Washington Post? Should that play into whether you accept a letter purporting to or claiming to Uh, believe that this laptop is disinformation when everything about basic journalism would teach you that the letter itself is disinformation. And it was a disinformation operation. It was funny because this Glenn Kessler thing, he tries to make a distinction between disinformation and an information operation. And James Clapper, even who's totally corrupt and awful, even he's like, no, that's just really the same thing. And then it is also funny that after everything Fusion Natasha has done to support corrupt intelligence operatives like James Clapper. He totally does not appreciate the work she's done to lie, cheat, steal her way to, you know, acclaim in journalism by regurgitating whatever they give her. He trashes her, throws her under the bus and says, yeah, she lied when she put that as the headliner. Politico was totally dishonest with what they did. It's very unfair actually to her, even though she has she deserves nothing but contempt for her for her role in hurting the country. She's called Fusion Natasha because 
she was known for uncritically regurgitating whatever Fusion GPS gave her for the Russia collusion hoax. And she rode that to increase job opportunities. I mean, she was rewarded for this lie that she published at Politico by being given a job at CNN. Nobody is held accountable for all of the bad work they do in uncritically regurgitating the worst information operations put out by CIA and other operatives. Other than one initial story that turned out to be completely untrue, and I forget which one it was because there were so many bad so-called scoops, I don't think anyone's been held accountable for the bad reporting they did during those four years. I can't think of a single reporter. There was that one story, but other than that, and most of those people have regained their jobs elsewhere, regained jobs elsewhere. Because if you look at it a different way, they didn't do a bad job. If you think that journalism is about reporting facts and helping educate the public about what's going on so they can make better decisions, yeah, they failed. If you acknowledge the reality that our media are propagandists who are designed who whose entire purpose is to help establishment regimes keep and increase their power they did a great job they really did a wonderful job if their role is propagandist and so why wouldn't they be promoted and elevated and given awards they did what they were supposed to do but what they were supposed to do was the furthest thing from journalism and it's in this thing too that glenn kessler is doing what he's supposed to do he's protecting james clapper a man with a long history of lying to the american public he's protecting other intelligence community people with this idiotic fact check but why wouldn't he? I mean, he's paid by the Washington Post to do this. It's there and I mean, they, they benefit financially. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. John Brennan should be in prison. John Brennan spied on the Senate of the United States when he was head of the CIA, lied about it to the American people, tried to negotiate his way out of it, blamed it on the Senate staffers, tried to get them in trouble, innocent people. And yet he's held up as this important former you know, intelligence officer. Sorry. Go I on. do want to say about both Brennan and Clapper here. The moment that letter came out, I read it and I knew exactly what they were doing. It's what is being reported now. Yeah. They were like, oh, we were just saying it looked bad and we never said it was disinformation. And, you know, the time to say that Natasha Bertrand and Politico were bald faced liars is the moment that that letter comes out that you now claim misinterpreted what you were saying. The moment yeah. to say this is loudly with great, you know, drama. The moment Joe Biden on national television in the final presidential debate says, hey, James Clapper and Brennan over there, they said it was Russian disinfo and you can trust them. So that's the moment. You Did you see that part in the Glenn Kessler piece, the Washington Post fact check where he says, oh, I didn't I didn't um, I didn't I don't think I knew that Biden did that. Oh, you didn't you didn't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. First of all, he was on TV all the time. Of course, he knew he was literally covering this stuff for I believe he was on CNN. Right. I, I, I he, he was hired li- by CNN. Right. 
they all used the Steele dossier, which almost surely included Russian disinformation and spread it all the time. There was no letter from Clapper or Brennan saying, hey, most of this isn't true. Be careful. Has the earmarks of Russian disinformation. They just spread it the whole time. The whole thing is just such a joke. And anyone with uh, any common sense understands what that letter was about. You and said, th- you know, yeah, you just said most of this isn't true. And I, it just reminds me of this thing. The Steele dossier was this large document that purported that Donald Trump had been cultivated by Russia for decades and was, you know, operating on their behalf and that he'd colluded with them to steal the election. There were all sorts of financial arrangements or whatever. And people will sometimes say, well, so, some of that was proven true. And what they mean by that is that there are lines in there that say stuff like Russia is a country or Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. And they'll go, see, that's true. That's true. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you really kidding me right now? Yes, publicly available information was true. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the lies about urination and prostitutes and financial entanglement, which was not proven true or even like close to it. And we later learned that the Russian who cooked that stuff up and gave it to Christopher Steele. It's kind of unclear whether Christopher Steele took real things and lied about them or whether Igor Danchenko lied about them when he gave them to Christopher Steele or in all likelihood both. We don't know exactly how the lies got weaponized and put out there. But yeah, it was a Russian disinformation operation. And the plot twist is that it came from Hillary Clinton. Yeah, all disinformation or all big lies have many... Uh, truths within them or they wouldn't be plausible. That's an obvious thing. Yeah, and what you're saying is true too, that people keep saying parts of it were tr- proven true. But It said the sun rose in the east and we know that's true. The thing is, of course, that most of the stories that, that they grabbed onto were so fantastical and they showed absolutely no skepticism if we give them the benefit of the doubt that they were even trying to be reporters, which... I'm not sure it's true for most of them, but even if if you give them the benefit of the doubt, most they were willing to believe they were completely credulous on the most fantastical accusations and just reported them clearly not using the journalistic standards that the post used for this story that they decided to write a letter about. Right. So the whole thing's ridiculous. And uh, I hope no one falls for it. I hope James Clapper is remembered as the corrupt person he is. Um, even if it just meant his lies about domestic spying, which were which was a terrible moment in American history, in my in my view. And this was pr- maybe even worse, just the way he participated in this. Um, all right, let's move on to something else. It's just very I, I can't believe we're still relitigating all of this and people pretend that we always will until people are held accountable. And that doesn't appear to happen. I mean, they, I don't think people understand nothing can nothing can improve until and unless people are held accountable for what they did to the country. And it's of global import, this hoax that they ran. And they appear to be, you know, digging in, retrenching, getting worse. And that's a very bad sign for the for the health of our country. That was a bit depressing. Let's talk about something else. Yeah, I'm just about a year ago, there was an Axios story that, they were, you know, they were talking about there was going to be a reckoning for all the mistakes made during the Russia collusion <laughs> stuff. And yet no one, no one. There is no reckoning. There is no the real. The New York uh, Times right now is pushing disinformation about uh, Barr and Durham because they're worried that there might be like a tiny little sliver of information that comes out from that um, special counsel probe. It's just yeah, they're not. The, the, the bigger picture here is that this is terrible for the country and that we cannot like we cannot trust anything our intelligence, uh, you know, 
agencies tell us like you, you can't any story that I can't trust it. And it's just very bad for the country when we have something really serious to deal with. On that note, yeah. do you have thoughts on these Chinese or maybe not Chinese spy balloons? And do you believe Molly, that was my that was going to be my segue. <laughs> worked on that we're on the same page (laughs) thank you i appreciate it um (laughs) honestly i've not even i don't think i've even mentioned them once i i don't believe anything they're telling us at all um the initial balloons i think some local news crew in montana saw that balloon and then we were following it and then the biden said we couldn't shoot it down because it might fall and people were in danger and then like a week later we're just shooting everything out of the sky all of a sudden we're not worried about anyone oh wait do you remember how we couldn't we had to let the first spy balloon surveil the entire country because it would be too risky to shoot it down and then on the fourth object which we're not quite sure if they're drones or balloons or what they're they missed. And so a missile just was aiming for the fourth object missed. And we don't know where the missile went. And I'm like, we really traveled a long way in a week from we can't do anything to stop this surveillance balloon to we fired a missile and it missed and we don't know where the missile landed. Like that's also, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, here's another question I have. Does Canada not have any weapons or anything? Why are we shooting down things over Canada? So did you see when Fidel Castro's son was like, I ordered the shoot down yeah. of an object in over Canadian airspace? And then he's like, and the U.S., the U.S. did it like you ordered the U.S. to shoot down. Really? Really? Yeah, we should not Fidel be letting Jr. people, especially a Canadian, say, say uh, spread disinformation that he can order the United States to shoot down balloons or whatever these things are. Listen, I think that. uh we're ne- you know, we don't know what's going on. I assume they're just some kind of Chinese spying contraptions all over the place. Apparently, I saw a story that they were also seen in Africa and in the Middle East. I'm slightly confused. Don't the Chinese have satellites where don't we have satellites that can like read a license plate? Do we really like what do, do balloons give you that a satellite doesn't? So I, I I think it's actually a good question and the type of question that people should be asking. What are they getting out of this that's different? And I want to point out, like, one of the things that was interesting about the second object that was shot down over Alaska on Friday is that it flew above 35,000 feet, but was not a balloon. And so there was a lot of confusion. Or This is what the reporting from the mm-hmm. Pentagon is. A lot of confusion because drones can only fly up to 35,000 feet, reportedly, but it was too low for one of these balloons. And so... Maybe it's a new technology of drone that's better or something like that. But there are things where you might want slow movement. You might be trying to detect. You can you can send signals to detect how deep something is. So maybe they're trying to find out more about where we're housing things underground, uh, that they need a slow moving, closer to earth kind of system. It could just be that they're trying to test what our response capabilities are for something else they have planned. Um, You know, I don't know, but I hope good people are not just thinking about it, but doing much more than they have been. My assumption has always been that the United States is very easy to spy on because we're such an open society. We literally invite people in from countries that are basically our enemies to participate in our world here. And that it it seems we let them buy farm giant, you know, farmland near military installations and things like that. It seems to me that these balloons, I don't know. I don't know enough about the technology, but it just seems to me like that, that it seems like they would, they wouldn't provide enough information as opposed to the sort of political problems that it would create, but 
by, by being found out. My other concern, yeah, and it's related to what you said at the beginning about not trusting the government. I look at our situation with China. So you you think about how for many decades we fought a cold war with the Soviet Union and we had many different ways of fighting that, not just with our military, but with our businesses, frankly, with our arts and entertainment, with our media. We were kind of an all hands on deck I mean, at least for most people, except for some on the far left who were sympathizers with with uh, the Soviet Union to take down this communist threat. And when the Soviet Union imploded, it created a bit of a vacuum. And I think there are all these people, these neocon type people who think that Russia is the inheritor of this problem of the Soviet Union. But there's really not any debate that the inheritor of the communist scourge is Red China. And far from fighting a Cold War with them, we're completely in bed with them. It's not just Joe Biden, who whose family business is very deeply involved. There are a lot of top Republicans who are very deeply involved. There are former you know, British government officials who just work for Huawei. The, they've really done a good job of infiltrating all of our leadership class and making them wealthy through this codependency that we have with them. And they're kind of the worst of... They're, they're a difficult enemy because they are communist and Red China has all the problems associated with any communist regime. But they also have a pretty big market. It's not quite what we were dealing with with the Soviet Union. And they exploit their market components to increase their communist power in a weird way. Um, and so it makes it much more difficult to disentangle and to deal with this threat and I can't really think of a worse president to manage this entrance into what more and more Americans are realizing will be, you know, ideally a cold war, not a hot war, than Joe Biden, the guy who, while he was running for president, was like, what do these crazy people think China uh, is not our best friend and China is our best friend. And, you know, he had been he was bragging about his excellent relationship with the dictator for life. She, um, or, you know seemingly for life. He was bragging about his good relationship with these red Chinese corporate interests. And it makes me feel extremely agitated to think that, you know, we have growing conflict here and the guy in charge of the country does not even recognize it insofar as he recognizes anything. Yeah. I think that uh, the, the reason we had sort of almost even Democrats, Republicans, you had the whole country opposed to Soviet Union. This was more uh, framed more as an ideological clash between communism and capitalism and, you know, and freedom and all that. Whereas now you don't have have that since the fall of the Soviet Union, I guess, China. I hope and I still hope and it's probably an unpopular opinion that that with the increased wealth, increased markets, that there would be corresponding freedom. But didn't work out that way, even though it did work out that way in other places in Vietnam, you know, in 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 so, Europe and and stuff like that. But it's not working out that way in China. So I think that that's why we had a sort of different kind of relationship with them where we had hoped, I think, most people that it would change. And it really hasn't. I wouldn't even call it really a communist nation. I know it is communist. I'm not trying to put that aside, but it's sort of created this sort of like hybrid fascistic communist nation where it's just really authoritarian, but capitalistic in many ways. So it creates a whole different dynamic to that, you know, to, to the Cold War we're having in a way. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. It's like still got state or party control of these businesses, but they also have these huge markets. It's it makes them more powerful and and more difficult to take on. But, but I, also, I, I, here's here's where I disagree with a lot of people. I don't know how to deal with that. I'm not an expert. But if you cut China off, it's not like Mao's China, which was cut off from the world, was any freer or any less uh, militaristic or any. So I, I don't know that China is going to be less of a danger if we don't trade with them at all or or whatever. You know, so I'm just saying I, I just just, think it's more complicated than people sometimes think. I just want to say, I, I yeah. also believed, like you said, you believed that opening up China would be good for for the cause of freedom and liberty. I sometimes am embarrassed to go back and reread, you know, Bill Clinton gave that kind of famous speech about how this would open up China and how they would become more like us and we'd get this big market. And it made sense to me. It made sense to me that this is what we would try and do. I also, you know, generally supported the um, engagement with China under Nixon as a way to take on the Soviet threat, that triangulation, I think, was wise. Uh, it clearly failed. We became more like China. We adopted their authoritarianism in our into our corporations. They have not become a freer place. They are a horrific place for the people of China. And we made them very powerful. And so I think that in the same way that we took on the Soviet Union, you know, which was like I was saying, there were the defense people, the foreign policy people who knew the threat posed by the Soviet Union. There were the free market capitalist type people who saw the threat posed by a communist system. There were the social conservatives who saw how the Soviet Union restricted religious freedom. I do want to say this disentanglement, you've seen people start to do some of this, and I think it's going well insofar as it can be the last 10 years have been a huge wake-up call for a lot of people politically and economically and uh having china have so much control over our supply chain uh is not great and so you're seeing people naturally move either to other asian countries or else you know african or south american countries for some of their supply chain needs and that's that's going to be a healthy thing as well but we're we're at a vulnerable spot now, and it seems like China is taking advantage of it. And so I just there's a reason to be nervous. But yeah, Joe, we can Joe talk Biden's more about this yeah. later. I feel like there will be more updates on it. So I'm wondering if I, there's. I suspect China will be around, and we'll see more <laughs> of these things going on. It, it it's 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 crazy. I'll just leave it with this. It's crazy how little we know about what what's happening above our own skies. And if the Montana local news film crew hadn't spotted that balloon, would we even know now? Would anything have been shot down? No, I doubt anything would have been shot down. I think the United States would have just let this happen. And that that that's it's just it's it's a sign of weakness, right? Two things I just want to say. One was about the idiotic way the Defense Department came out and tried to remove blame for their inaction on the first spy balloon. Do you remember when like they leaked out or they put some anonymous claim that actually China has been spying on us for years and the previous administration did nothing about it. And then when everyone's like everyone in the administration is like, what the heck are you talking about? We never had we never had any information about this. Then they on come the balloon, back on yeah. and they go, Oh, um, yeah, we've recently determined that that did happen and that you did nothing. It's like that. That's not a real thing. People say, you know, we recently determined that this previous thing happened. And that, I mean, it's your job 
to be determining whether these things are happening. And also, I don't even believe you. Like, I don't even, I'm not even saying that I find it hard to believe that this has been going on for years. I find that easy to believe. But just the fact that they're saying it and I don't believe anything they say, I'm like, what's, what is their angle here? Yeah, but we were, we were right not to even believe that, right? They lied. They lied about the, everything. The, they said the but Trump then, administration had three balloons go over and they did nothing about it. And yet, then later we learned that they didn't actually know about those balloons. So, you know, it was a one source story. I forgot who broke it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It happens all the time. And then the second thing is our skies have become a free fire zone and Biden has said nothing about it. And I'm not saying that a lot needs to be said, but maybe go ahead and address the country and say, so we now have major conflict in our skies above your homes. We're shooting things down left and right willy nilly. We've got missiles that are going astray and we don't even know where they are. Like, go ahead and just explain what's going on to the American people. And this basement strategy was bad enough during the campaign, but definitely can't be done for the presidency. I mean, at the very least, you should come out and say, listen, there are these things in our sky and we need to shoot them down. They're from other countries and we're going to figure out what it's about. And then we're going to come back to you and let you know, you know, or or we can't let you know because it's too, you know, or, or something, anything. Well, he's not running the country, as you often say. So we, we need the real president to come out and tell us. Speaking right. of here's another segue. Speaking of presidents and future presidents, possibly. Uh, we're in, we're already in the new, you know, we're already campaigning for the next presidency. Donald Trump has announced he's running for the presidency. And now we learn that uh, Nikki Haley is going to announce. And she did, but or did. I'm not sure. Happened. And Tim Scott is thinking about it or mm-hmm. did. Yeah. So I think those are the only two right now. And right away, everyone's like, this is silly season. All these people with no chance are running for president. And I just want to quickly say before we get into this, there is literally no downside. I shouldn't say literally. There is no downside to running for president today. All you do is raise money. All you do is get coverage by the media and you're running for vice president. Probably. Is Those this are the your things. announcement? Yeah. If I don't there's have no a, downside, why don't you throw your hat in the ring? Well, if you're a, a person of a certain stature and a certain renown, I would literally couldn't win an election in my own home. So, no, I am not running for president. No one likes my policy positions. Do you like Nikki Haley's policy positions? Here's the thing. Everyone. So obviously there's an immediate knee jerk reaction to Nikki Haley. I don't like Nikki Haley uh, as a candidate. I don't like how she speaks. She speaks in the way that, you know, I would say George Bush spoke. It's very, you know, this packaged way of speaking that, you know, quote unquote, neocons uh, like to use. She's a very traditional Republican. I don't know. I think from what I remember, I thought she did a pretty good job as governor of South Carolina. I think she's pretty conservative. I think um, I forget what exact initiatives I liked about her, but I didn't dislike her. I, well, do I think she has a chance of being president? No, I don't think she has a chance. But this dislike for anyone who's not immediately some kind of like, you know, uh bomb throwing populist. I don't know. I don't understand why the party can't have different kinds of people in it to appeal to different kind of voters. I just don't get what the anger over it. Yeah, I am having trouble actually getting into the presidential contest. Like, I just don't care. I'm trying to care, though. So I feel like now is a good time for everybody into the pool and then we can see what they have to say. I noticed that some of our colleagues did not like the way that she was leaning into identity politics. Uh, You know, sort of like, this is the daughter of immigrants. She's a female. She's Indian. And that's all fine. You know, these are all fine things. 
But the idea that your identity should matter more than what your policy proposals are is not a very conservative thing. And so I would encourage her to run on policy and not identity, even though she is, you know, obviously a very attractive, well-spoken female. And that is part, you know, it's, it's okay to, for that is part of whoever is running, but it's almost just weird how Republicans act like Democrats on that stuff. And then secondly, policy wise, she does have some baggage that I think she'll have to address. She has, like you said, good governor. So there's a lot of good that she can run on and she's very effective at talking about those things. But I think she has been too much in bed with the failed foreign policy of the old Republican Party. And I have never heard her really fully renounce that. And I think that would be important. I don't see a big lane for, you know, yeah, George W. Bush style foreign policy, basically. And it's not... It's not a political winner. There are some Republicans who, for some reason, are really into that. I think a lot of them left and became never Trump Democrats. Uh, but insofar as there's still a remnant of that, I I think um, it's not a big part of the party. Maybe not. I just don't think foreign policy positions matter that much to voters. I think to 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 a group it does, but I just overall I don't think anyone needs is going to want to talk about you know what her position was on Iraq. So- I mean, like Biden's position on, on Iraq, Biden's position on Iraq was all over the place and he never really had to pay a price for it. So you might remember that when George W. Bush ran for president, he ran on the opposite foreign policy of the one that he ended up implementing. And yes. so there was concern that Bill Clinton was moving into this democracy building, not American interest foreign policy. And George W. Bush made it a big part of his campaign to speak against that. You know, he said he didn't believe in nation building. He wanted a strong military that was not, you know, doing this policing playground stuff. And that contributed to his winning the Republican primary. And I, you know, 9-11, of course, changed everything. And people were very supportive of responding in Afghanistan less, uh, you know, then he moves into this Iraq project, which ended up kind of sinking his legacy and presidency and was a big factor in Barack Obama's win. Barack Obama spoke loudly and in a sustained way against the Bush foreign policy. He also struggled as president to take on the neocons that run the foreign policy establishment. And then you have Donald Trump, who surprises everyone by being so hardcore, even in that you know South Carolina primary debate, I remember being so hardcore against this neocon foreign policy that had sort of recently taken over the Republican Party. And ends up being successful even in primary states with strong military populations or not even, of course, it would be there because military people hate this foreign policy more than most for good reason. And um, and that brings us to, to the weirdness of the current situation. But the, my point being, it is a politically toxic thing to be into this foreign policy of a pretty tiny sector of the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. It, it, 
I supported the Iraq war. I was around at that time. It wasn't like any, you know, it wasn't big on writing a foreign policy. And uh, many people were for it. 67% of Americans, I think, supported the invasion the day before we did it. I was wrong. I think it was a big mistake as far as the democracy building aspects of it go. But by the time Trump became president, it was easy to be anti-Iraq war. I believe that he had a, I will give him credit for having a consistent, I think, position on that, if I remember correctly. But um it's not as if it was some, you know, some outlying position. Most people had saw that it f- the project had failed and wanted out. But we're, since we're out already, I just don't think, you know, and we're not involved in these things. And by the way, I know that David, th- we are Trump- right now in a proxy war with Russia run by the same people who right. mismanaged the Iraq I, conflict. I just mean the mismanaged Middle East. the Afghanistan war, which, right. which we actually did a great job with right away. And then we spent like 18 years not doing a great job with the same people who designed and implemented that are the people running our Ukraine proxy war. Right. I'm right. I'm just saying right that American soldiers aren't dying every day and, and people aren't as in tune with our foreign policy you're right about weaker as a country we're you know we're vulnerable to chinese aggression we are really risking an actual nuclear war because unlike iraq and afghanistan the people we've taken on this time have 6500 nuclear warheads and we're apparently our policy is to take them out meaning take out their leadership which puts them in a position of desperation and also it's just a prolonged war i mean i agree with you like the american troops aren't there yet Obviously, that's what Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden are scheming to have happen, but their money is there and the bad effects of having all of our money and weapons there in terms of our uh, strategy for protection of our own country. It's it's happening now and it's not good. And I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to become more popular in the coming months and years. Listen, there there are two debates about what's popular and what is right and they're often not the same. And I don't know how unpopular our help to Ukraine is right now. I don't think polls show that there's overwhelming anger about it, right? Maybe among Republicans, well, it's split. You, so, did you notice that in Joe Biden's State of the Union, he yeah, barely I, mentioned it? And the reason why is like, if you mention it, people get upset about it. And the polling is interesting. Like people want to help Ukraine. They know that Russia was unfairly aggressive with them. But they say things that are pretty clear, like no more money or we should not be giving more money than Europe. I mean, we're given more money than every European country combined. We're doing more in every way than every European country combined. And so that is actually not meeting with um, political approval. But it's not you're right. It's not like people are. No, it's a compl- it's complicated. People's opinions on these things are complicated. I think I've always believed that Americans would rather not deal with foreign policy at all if they could avoid it and they just sort of let things shake out. I think it's a mistake. We should be having a really vigorous debate about what's happening there. I completely agree with all that stuff. I just don't know that it's going to hurt a candidate because they supported the Iraq war. In fact, I was thinking the other day, and maybe there is an answer to this, maybe there's not. Why are you talking about Iraq? Why not talk about Ukraine, the one that we're in right now? I don't know. is, Is Nikki Haley... Want is Nikki Haley on on board with? Send, I mean, I don't know enough about I guess about her positions, but is she on board with sending troops to Ukraine? Or does she want to expand that war? Does she want to topple Putin? I don't know. I haven't heard yeah, of she's any been, of that she's, stuff. She and Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence and I think a few others have been very supportive of. Like, if they criticize the approach right now, their criticism is that Biden isn't doing enough. Um, no. They're 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 taking that angle, so they will compete for that lane of the 
of the primary thing. But if I, I'm not advising her, obviously, but if I were, I would, I would think about separating myself from that foreign policy. Now, maybe that's her legitimate principled belief about this kind of stuff. And then she's probably not going to be very popular on foreign policy. I do want to say, and I don't know how this plays at all, but I think she's pretty savvy. Like she, unlike a lot of people in the Republican establishment regime, she does not make totally stupid decisions. She's, she's just, you know, when everybody was like, you have to, you have to oppose the front runner for the Republican nomination and renounce him. And she, supported someone else. I think it was Rubio in South Carolina, but she didn't lose her mind about it. She played well with Trump for the most part. You know, she's sometimes like retreats back into that old Republican way of acting like being nice is more important than helping out, you know, voters, but she's pretty savvy. And I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I learned in 2015 and 2016 not to make any predictions. I realized that sometimes you think someone's going to do well and they're the first out, or you think someone has no chance and they become a sitting U.S. president. Well, that's what I wanted so, to mention. Yeah. About, so I'm, about, I'm just kind of yeah. want to see how it goes. About having no downside. I mean, I don't know if you probably remember when Barack Obama ran. A lot of people thought he had no chance that Hillary is going to win. A lot of people thought that it was just, you know, uh, uh, he was running for vice president or he's looking for attention. And then he ended up winning. Hey, think about Donald Trump. I mean, how many people thought Donald Trump would win? Very few. And um, so, you know, I don't think there's a real downside for someone like that running. She's going to raise money. She's going to be on TV. She's going to be interviewed. She might become the vice VP candidate. Who I don't you know who knows. Um, I don't like her that much as a candidate. Honestly, I feel like she's a little plastic or like her answers are always contrived or she's always triangulating to be liked by all people at all times. Obviously, she's a politician, but it just doesn't seem authentic coming from her. I don't follow her that closely. I'm not trying to like, you know, but from what just my perception of her, like Tim Scott is actually a candidate I'm more interested in. I'd be more interested in than Nikki Haley because I think he seems like Honestly, his story is is kind of uh, more interesting to me, and and he seems like an authentic guy. But also, I don't think he. I think he's running for vice president as well if he does run. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention those two things. I just don't see like the, what's the downside in running. Everyone, we're talking about them right now. Like there is no downside. Quickly, I just want to go back one quick thing. Ron DeSantis is going to run. Obviously, he's one of the heavyweights, right? And I just wonder if. We know where he stood on Iraq. Like, was he in politics yet? So what was his position? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I actually so I think his instincts are extremely good on foreign policy, including the thing that comes to mind for me. And I'm not totally sure on the Iraq situation. I mean, my my perception, I don't even know if he was in politics at that time as some as one of the few people who did oppose the Iraq war. I felt like nobody else was with us. So I just assume he's on the other side of that. But do you remember when Barack Obama was trying to, oh wait, it was, yeah, it was both Libya and Syria. So the the foreign policy establishment, people who make bad decisions about everything, were trying to topple the Libyan dictator, you know, head of the Libyan country. Huge um, mistake, but yeah. And it was a disaster. And then also Obama was trying to rally support to invade Syria, but then he threw it to Congress and the mood of the people, which you say doesn't matter, actually in both Democrats and Republican that. circles, they were not into this. And I remember that Ron DeSantis spoke very well about how in both of those situations, there was no strategy and he needed to hear what the strategy was before he would support, 
you know, going into this and that he had a lot of, he had a lot of concerns about what would happen in terms of negative consequences of both of these things. Now, he did show some courage when he was in Congress. I have also personally heard him speak about, you know, this issue of Republican foreign policy and how it kind of got hijacked in the Bush era and how it was totally different than what we were doing prior to that. You know, he talks about how the American foreign policy and Republican foreign policy have been kind of the same thing for a long period of time. This idea that we mind our business very hard, but we don't do unnecessary intervention. And, you know, because you you get these people who are kind of like not a fan of having a strong military or the people who think that you have to use it to democracy build. And he has a very middle ground kind of approach. Like, no, we have a very strong military. We want to be really ready for any of the threats that come. We might have to use it. We might have to go to war, but we don't want to just do it willy nilly at great cost of treasure and bodies. But I don't know how he would handle standing up against this horrible establishment that kind of runs all the agencies. Because, you know, Bush fell. He, he was unable to stay strong. Obama was unable to stay strong. Trump had the most success in resisting them, but he told Sean Davis and me in an interview once, it was far and away the hardest part of his pres- presidency was fighting the neocons in the bureaucracy. So I would love to see Ron DeSantis kind of tested on this as he runs and see how he articulates it. When did it, the United it requires St- a lot when, of courage. When did the United States mind its own business? Not since Warren Harding did the American uh, uh, military so, uh, mind its own business. We've been literally in every part of the world since then. I never I just succeeded don't, at the yeah. this Monroe Doctrine. The George Washington farewell address that he gives you know, when he finishes his presidency is all about avoiding foreign entanglements. We have always failed. But there is that like predis or is that, there's that disposition toward that that you want to encourage. But you are right that we have never minded our own business. Yeah. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was entangled in a war in the Barbary Coast. I, we we have always been entangled in foreign wars and, and foreign uh elections and things like that, because it, it does affect us in many ways. And if we simply allow, I'm not a neocon, I know you're going to call me a neocon, but if we had just let the communists uh, take all of East Asia, where would we be now? Where would the world be now? Where would China be now? It's just, it's not as, I, I just don't really, I'm not ideological about foreign policy. I just think every incident is different. But anyway. I Maybe should, we should have the great neocon policy, foreign policy debate now that you've just revealed yourself to be right. one later. Let's move on to culture. It's a very frustrating conversation. But um, have you seen any movies? Have you seen anything you enjoyed? Have you seen anything you want people who are listening to watch or listen to? Yeah, I don't know if this is less frustrating, but I did watch two things. Two. All right. One was Les Miserables, the musical movie. The movie? Yeah. Okay. Which was the choice of one of our children. You know, we try to rotate around for family movie night. What gets chosen? Who gets to choose? And so that was a choice of a child. And I had never, I'd never read the book. I had never seen the other film adaptations. And I was very moved by the story. Like I could, I didn't realize it was this big Christian film about mercy and forgiveness and sacrifice. Um, I am not the world's biggest musical fan and I didn't love all the songs. I liked two of the songs maybe. And, but I really did enjoy it. It was, you know, I, I saw it. I, 
Yeah, I thought it was okay. I hate the dialogue, almost singing thing that they do throughout. I just can't stand that kind of stuff. But some of the songs are okay. And, you know, it did, it glorifies the French Revolution a bit, right? Or am I getting the time things wrong? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. In a way, but also it kind of shows the pointlessness of it, too. (laughs) Then it just like moves on with one of the characters. I I wonder if the Victor Hugo, I wonder if the Victor Hugo novel is good or not. Well, I also wanted to see this Liam Neeson version, and I'm curious if that's good. Like, it's not a musical. It's just a story. And I thought maybe that would be good to watch. because I think Uma Thurman is in that. Yeah. Yeah. It has tons of people who I don't remember who they are right now, but, like, every single person was a major player actor. So kind of want to see that. And then Mark and I watched – I have no idea what possessed us to do this, but we watched Breathless, the 1960 – Jean-Luc Godard movie? Yeah, of course. Have you seen that? New Wave, of course. I've seen all those uh, French New Wave movies. Yeah, did you like it? Um, I, I saw it a while ago. I think I liked it, but I'm not sure if I was just young and I thought I had to think I liked it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it seemed like I can see why it was a big deal. It clearly is very influential in how movies are now. Um so realistic nothing on a set the reality of the conversation between the lovers and also Um, you have to think about it in the frame of the time when movies were these big elaborate productions and this was very realistic right i thought that's what i was just saying but yes you were i was just stressing it (laughs) and you know it's very immoral which was interesting um it's probably the wrong word to use for that but and I found, I don't know, I just found it kind of interesting. I enjoyed it. I would not recommend it to a general audience unless you're really interested in the development of film. Um, but I, I, I liked have, it. Have and you then, ever seen oh, the, yeah. Sorry. I, I, I was if you ever saw the, if you ever saw the uh, Richard Gere version in like night from 1982 it was black and white, I think. Mark mentioned that there was a Richard Gere version. I've never seen it, I don't think. But the woman, the American woman who stars in that, do you know anything about her story? I don't remember. So I'm totally spacing on her name. I always want to say it's Jean Sebring, but that's not her name. She was from Iowa and she'd been, you know, kind of selected for a big movie about Joan of Arc. She kind of rose from nowhere to become this big star, but she had some failed starts. Like she wasn't a great actress, even though she was working on these big budget films. And Breathless, I think, is the first film where she really is great as an actress and she becomes this big heroine of French cinema. But she was giving money to civil rights groups, but also like the Black Panthers. And so J. Edgar Hoover personally authorized a disparagement campaign against her to basically make her look like a fool and an idiot. And among the things that the FBI did is they tried to claim that the child that she was pregnant with by her husband was actually from an affair that she had with a black Panther. And it gets like placed in Hollywood press and it causes her so much anxiety and angst that she miscarries and also just leads her to think like her whole life that she's being pursued by the FBI and it makes her crazy. And then at the age of like 41, she kills herself like totally tormented by this. (laughs) I was on a radio interview with someone who was praising by and large, the FBI. And I just, I'm like, we do we just forget stories like this all the time? This is like, it's not new what they're doing to the American people now. They've been doing crap like this for a very long time. Yeah, Jean Seberg, C- I think is her name. or Seberg, something. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
So those are the two things you watched. Yeah. You. And then we're trying to clean out our basement because we're going through a little renovation. And mm-hmm. so I'm getting rid of records and I sold, and that's my scare quotes there, sold a bunch of records, including some really excellent ones that were worth a lot of money. And we basically got like a dollar per copy um, at the local record store in store credit. I'm completely confused by what's happening. Why Why do you have to sell them? Why can't you just put them in another room or something? Or we move one of your kids records. to let them be together and then have a room just for your records. We have too many records to be able to listen to everything. And so anything that we don't totally love, we're trying to, I mean, we're keeping thousands, but we're trying to get rid of more. You know, I don't like it. Several hundred. I don't like this at all. <laughs> I should have just given you every single one of these for how little we got. I, I would have, I literally would have held them. I keep saying literally, I would have held them for you and then gave, given it back to you when you regret it, which is going to happen in like a few weeks. You'll be like, oh, I wanted to listen to David Bowie, Ma, you know, whatever. And then. No, in all seriousness, I have too many yeah. records nah, and I'm I trying to be more it. responsible. I've given myself, for instance, a limit on books. So every time now books come in, books have to go out. You've given me records, David. As guests. What are you doing? But like from your collection. Then I go and get it again. Like I gave you, I think I gave you guys King Crim- a King Crim- Crimson record because uh-huh. I have another copy of it. I wouldn't give you my only King what Crimson. What about the Joanna Newsom box set? I did not enjoy that. <laughs> She, I wanted to. She has a cute, yeah, she has an interesting be, voice. She plays the harp. I want to be cool enough to, to be into her. I don't know. I just, I wanted that out of the house. It wasn't working with my vibe. <laughs> I watched one show, I'll quickly say, it's called Kunk on Earth. Have you heard of this? No. So Philomena Kunk is the name of the person. It's kind of like a mockumentary. She's British. I don't think that's her real name. I forget what her real name is. Um, and it's kind of a take. Do you know Ken Clark's uh, Civilization documentary or stuff like yeah. that? So it's a take on that. Okay. Or other British documentaries on history. And uh, so she seems, it seems serious. It's really beautifully filmed from all around the world. And she's talking about civilization, but she subtly is making jokes about civilization the whole time and making jokes about history, religion, everything and it is i think it's hilarious i love it and i really recommend it highly it's on netflix okay all right um, that's all i had this week i did finish watching the mindy project don't don't ask why i'm glad you completed that task my wife's that when we start something we have to finish it so i'm always a little weary of getting into shows with six seasons and things like that Tyler Cowen taught me that if you don't like a book, it's okay to just stop reading it. And it was very liberating. And the same thing applies. Like I I watched that three episodes of that zombie game, video game thing that's out. This is Can I the last of us. Say, and then yeah. I'm done because I hated that third episode. And I was like, well, I'm done. And I'm, I'm, I feel liberated that I don't ever have I to I find watch. that show so boring. I don't understand what everyone's talking about. I keep giving it more chances and I am bored watching it. It's boring. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> make sure to watch some more stuff. Maybe some more of French New Wave. We could talk about it. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful week, Molly. And everyone else, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. As for the rest, all of them crooks, rookings, guests, and cookies and books. <laughs> <laughs>